Hello and welcome to The P-Value, a podcast about science, philosophy and everything in between. The P-Value is an initiative of the Centre for Philosophy of the Sciences at the Australian National University. In the late 90s, a urologist based at the University of Melbourne, Helen O'Connell, discovered that much of the orthodoxy to that point regarding the anatomy of the female genitalia was grossly inaccurate. Through a study of the sexual anatomy of female cadavers, O'Connell found that the degree of erectile tissue present in females had previously been significantly underestimated by the medical profession. Furthermore, the accepted maps of the musculature and blood vessels of the clitoris were incorrect. Indeed, parts of the clitoris appeared to have been entirely ignored, or not deemed to be part of it at all. Well, might you ask, how could this be? How could it be that up until just 30 years ago, we had such a confused understanding of this important part of the female body? What had gone wrong? Unsurprisingly, this case is a prime example of the ways that the social and moral values of society can negatively influence science. Hello, I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Brown, and this is The P-Value. The failure of earlier anatomists to accurately characterise the female anatomy was a product of a variety of intersecting cultural factors. First, while Helen O'Connell took care to make sure she was looking at healthy young female anatomy in her studies, earlier anatomists had not. They had predominantly examined the cadavers of elderly women, as their bodies were more likely to be suitable and available for study. Given this, their characterisations of the female anatomy were based on that of postmenopausal females whose genitals were not typical of younger women. To quote O'Connell, one of our cadavers was 36 years old and she looked like an Amazon. You might ask why this had not been noted before the mid-90s and this brings me to the second reason for this situation. Many anatomy textbooks hark back to old data from the Victorian era when prudishness about the female anatomy was common and sexist assumptions about the function of female sex, such as women not liking sex and sex being purely functional for women, were orthodoxy. The idea that women would have considerable sexual tissue was not given a lot of credence, and such it was not questioned when what anatomists found was what they expected. Furthermore, most anatomists and doctors at the time were male, so had relatively little experience or motivation to carry out more extensive study. This sort of sexism in the study and understanding of female sexuality also extended to the female orgasm. As famously argued by American historian and philosopher of biology, Lisa Lloyd, there's good evidence that orgasms in both females and males are produced by homologous tissue. But theories of female orgasm have tended to focus on its function rather than its pleasurable aspects, whilst in men, pleasure has been the focus. These are prime examples of what is typically called scientific bias, where the cultural and moral preconceptions of the scientists or a group of scientists influence their practice and findings. The history of science is full of such examples, in some cases with egregious outcomes for the health of minority communities, the environment, and so forth. In recent times, for example, the role of sexism in biasing our knowledge of female pathology has been associated with adverse outcomes for a variety of diseases ranging from heart attack to polycystic ovary syndrome. The case of female sexuality highlights the really negative influence that social and moral values can have on scientific progress. 
and the ways that this can have significant knock-on effects in public policy. Whilst we would hope that we would not fall foul of similar bias today, it should make us ask, what other values and ideas are influencing society today? How else could the scientific process be being subverted by our preconceptions? When we look at Helen O'Connell and Lisa Lloyd's groundbreaking research on human sexuality, we see the insidious role that bias can play in science. It seems reasonable to conclude from such cases that values have no place in science. Clearly, at least in the sexuality case, values have had a stymieing effect on scientific progress and negative social repercussions. This diagnosis of the situation fits with our common sense view that good science is objective or free of values. Good science, or so it seems, involves a sort of organised scepticism or value-free ideal which requires the scientist to set aside their values and preconceived ideas about what is and is not true. This sort of scepticism goes all the way back to the early scientists and key Enlightenment philosophers like Bacon and Descartes. But is all good science objective or value-free? Can values sit comfortably with science? In the next two episodes, I'll be pushing back on the common idea that our best science is objective or value-free, and hopefully convince you that not only are we unable to really get away from values in science, but they're not necessarily a bad thing to take into account in our scientific practice. Before we get started, it's important to be clear what we mean when we say objective or value-free here. The simplest entry into the concept is by contrasting values with facts. So if we think about facts or factive claims, they concern the way the world is. For example, the statement, the earth is a sphere rotating around the sun, is a factive claim. Similarly, the nucleus of a cell contains DNA. Such statements can of course be more or less fitting with the way the world is, but nonetheless they concern matters of fact which we take to be mind-independent and objective. They are claims that will be true or false, regardless of perspective and the typical domain of scientific inquiry. In contrast, values or evaluative claims are about what is right or wrong, or good or bad. They are about normative, moral and social concerns. For example, statements like, killing innocent babies is wrong, or it's good to give money to the poor, or sexism is bad, all concern values. These sorts of claims appear far more subjective and relative to perspective, and it's not clear what, in terms of evidence, could be used to easily prove or justify them as true or false. When we look to the history of science, we see a great deal of emphasis on the importance of setting aside one's value judgments or preconceived ideas when undertaking good scientific study. This is cashed out in a number of different ways, with science being described as value-free or value-neutral or ideal science as being disinterested and objective. The key idea for our purposes is that good science is science undertaken and driven by factual and unbiased concerns, rather than the values or ideas of the scientist about what is or is not right, or is or is not good. Various measures, such as the use of scientific controls and blind studies, are intended to help ensure that this is the case. But can we really avoid value so easily? And is good science always value-free. Harvard philosopher of science Helen Longino argues that some types of value-laden judgments are actually intrinsic to good scientific practice. 
she calls the sorts of values in these contexts constitutive values. Constitutive values are those which relate to our scientific goals, such as truth, accuracy, simplicity, predictability, and breadth. According to Longino, it's not typically problematic for us to choose to adopt one scientific theory over another on the grounds of holding one of these values because they're values that are motivated by the desire to generate true claims. Simplicity, for example, is often used to arbitrate between theories in physics and maths, the least complex theory being the most likely to be true via parsimony-style reasoning or Occam's razor. This, Longino says, is a situation where values are an intrinsic part of good science. The troublesome values, according to Longino, are those she calls contextual values. These are the personal, social and cultural values of the scientist or their preferences about what ought to be the case. It is when these contextual values influence scientific practice and which scientific theories we adopt that things have gone wrong. In the case of the female orgasm, for example, it was sexist contextual values, not constitutive values, that resulted in the biased interpretation of data. Longino's distinction points to a useful place for values in science, which seems benign. But there remains the question of contextual values. Even if we accept her distinction, are contextual values always bad? How can we know when we're in the good or bad case, once we let in values of any type? When I look at cases like that of female sexual anatomy, I'm struck by how obvious it seems to us now that things had gone astray. But I have to remind myself that this feeling is something of a red herring and that I shouldn't get too confident. Because whilst we can see now that the anatomists of the 19th and 20th century had missed out a very significant source of bias in their studies through their own preconceived prejudice, we can't be sure we're not in such a situation ourselves now. Indeed, that the history of science is littered with cases of scientists being influenced by their social and moral values, and it is, suggests the very real possibility that we're in the bad case right now and we don't know it. John Dupre, a philosopher from Exeter in the UK, is sceptical that there's even a clear line between good and bad cases in the first place. Those advocating the value-free ideal of science are, he says, wrongly assuming that it's possible for science to be purely concerned with fact, i.e. science only deals with factive claims, and not values at all. He says, even if we set aside the sort of constitutive facts that Longino points to, avoiding contextual facts is impossible because many scientific claims involve inherent value claims from the get-go. Dupre demonstrates this idea through examples. He begins with some clear cases. There are some claims which are clearly factual, such as electrons have charge, And there are other claims, such as torturing children is bad, that are clearly evaluative or normative. We all agree on those cases. There are, however, he says, lots of other types of claims which sit somewhere in between. For example, the statement, the United States is a violent country. Evaluating the truth or falsity of that claim requires us to be able to measure if a country is violent. And it's not clear that there is some matter of fact in play here but rather a value judgment. In this sense, the statement, the United States is a violent country, is neither factive nor evaluative, but the mixture of the two. 
because whether or not the claim is true depends on how we define violent, and that depends on our values, but also some facts, whether or not the United States fits that definition. Dupre doesn't see the US example to be an outlier. Rather, he says this is the norm. Whilst in some very technical fields, so physics, we typically use purely factive language in science, in most other fields, particularly biology and the social sciences, he says, we use evaluative language all the time, or at least language with some evaluative content. The only reason that we think that there's such a possibility as values-free science then, says Dupre, is that we've focused on physics as our paradigm of good science, when it's actually an outlier. It's the strange case. So, if Dupre's right, are we then just at the mercy of values? Can we not get rid of them? Given what both Longino and Dupre say, perhaps the real issue here is not whether science can be free of value, but how values should influence science. We have at least one clear case on the table where things have gone wrong in female sexuality. Perhaps looking at this more closely can tell us something. Again here, Longino offers some useful analysis. We can, she says, think of two ways social and moral values influence science. First, they can influence the autonomy of scientists to study what they want to study. For example, sexist values led anatomists to prioritise studying the male sexual anatomy rather than the female sexual anatomy. Whilst this was unfortunate and led to injustices of various sorts, this type of influence of values on the autonomy of science does not in of itself constitute bad science because it doesn't lead to falsehoods, or so Longino says. A second sort of less benign influence, she points to, concerns the influence of values on the integrity of science. So the integrity of science is sort of the internal practice of observation, experiment, theory, construction and inference. It's here, Longino says, that the real problem arises for values. Again, looking back to the Victorian anatomists, that they didn't entertain the possibility that they were getting biased information due to using elderly cadavers is an example of values influencing the integrity of science. The anatomists' preconceived ideas inappropriately influenced the outcome of their research and led to the acceptance of false theory. Whilst, as noted, there's been injustice resulting from their failure to study female anatomy, that in of itself doesn't mean we have bad science. What makes the case of female anatomy bad science concerns the ways in which sexist social values impinged upon the integrity of the scientific practice itself. What do you think? Has Longino got it right? When the institution we know now as science was being formed in the early 17th century, Francis Bacon identified four idols he believed diverted scientific inquiry from the proper ideals. First, idols of the tribe, group preconceptions that lead people to see things in the old ways. Two, idols of the cave, individual weaknesses and biases which distort experience. Three, idols of the marketplace, these result from failing to use language carefully. And four, idols of the theatre. These manifest when people have too much respect for received philosophical systems and mistaken methods. 
These Baconian ideals were the bedrock of the scientific institutions we see today, and they're reflected in our focus on the importance of objectivity and integrity. Our discussion raises the question of how feasible these ideals really are and whether they really matter. You might be thinking, what's important is not to eliminate values, but to avoid the bad kind as best we can. In the next podcast, I'll argue that this is a mistake, and that to truly do good science, we ultimately have to embrace values. Thank you for listening to The P-Value. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Brown. The P-Value is supported by the Centre for Philosophy of the Sciences at the Australian National University. Thank you.